As I said, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, the the whole epistle of Philippians I think is very interesting because if you recall, what are the circumstances that Paul is in? Uh, He's in chains. He's writing this letter from prison. And this is one of of a few letters that we have of him in prison and writing to Christians uh, about his circumstance or really more so about their circumstance and particularly their relationship with Christ. But, But thinking about this situation that Paul is in, I want you to listen to the kind of language that Paul uses and really the kind of attitude he has. Beginning in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, remembering the circumstances that Paul is in, does this... Do these sound like the words of a man who is devastated by suffering and inflictions that have been just coming into his life and pouring into his life? Most of the time, when you talk to people today, especially in our culture, what happens is if there's even a, not if they're in prison, but if there's just a remote issue, you know, something around the house, AC's gone out, maybe the heat's gone out, maybe there's something wrong with the water softener, I don't know, but just one thing in our daily comforts that goes wrong. And it's not 11 verses of, oh, I've been thinking about you, and I've missed you, and I just have only love for you, and I'm so joyful thinking about you and every thought that I have for you. Usually, it's 11 minutes or 11 hours of somebody just saying, I can't tell you the kind of pain that I have been in, and I just can't tell you how awful my life has gotten. And, and I mean, really, it's, it, we live in a culture of people that, that like to be uh, constantly complaining about the injustices or the suffering that they have experienced. This is not the kind of person Paul was. And in fact, when you look throughout this epistle, it's not just in the first 11 verses here. The the word rejoice or joy is used more than two times as frequently than in any other book in the New Testament. I think in the Bible, but in at least the New Testament. Interesting, coming from a man who is writing this from prison. And so what I take from this is from the example of Paul and really what we see throughout all of the scriptures is that Christians are meant to be the most genuinely genuinely, sincerely joyful people in the world. And I'm not talking about happy people because happiness and joy, there's a difference there that we'll get into a little bit more later on. But what I'm talking about is joy, steadfast joy, long-suffering joy, true joy. And, And this is supposed to be the case even in the midst of suffering that the world has to offer. And, and, and so I think when we look at something like this, look at Paul's example, and we see what the Bible says to Christians, we have to be joyful people. We look at that and think, I, that just is impossible. Or this seems backwards. 
And why? Because we do live in a world where there's just all kinds of suffering waiting, just, just waiting to come upon us. And so we look at that and say, that just, that just doesn't seem right. Well, what does the Bible truly say about what joy looks like and what it doesn't look like? That's what I want to focus on this morning. And I think that it will help us understand it's not impossible. And in fact, it's supposed to just be a given. It's supposed to be just the, the default for a Christian. And so maybe the problem is we just don't understand what joy is supposed to look like. And so staying in Philippians chapter 1, we'll pick up where we left off. But I want to focus on what Christian joy is not reliant on. And there's a few things that we'll mention here. But first of all, it's not reliant on an absence of persecution. There's all kinds of afflictions that can come upon us. And persecution is one way that, that we suffer. And so picking up in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, it says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And, and again, you just put a bookmark in Philippians because we'll be going through uh, uh, a lot of passages throughout this epistle. But look at how Paul speaks about not just the joy he has in Christ, but the joy he has in the midst of such persecution. And I mean outright, direct persecution. It's so different from what we experience in America. We have a lot of liberty that kind of protects us from this kind of, a lot of discomforts, just discomforts. This is true evil. And so it, it what we find just from the very beginning of, of Paul's epistle here is that Christian joy is not reliant on an absence of persecution. Instead, it utilizes persecution. It is literally the fruit of this imprisonment, of this affliction that Paul rejoices in. Now, all throughout, what I want to make clear is Paul, and nor should any Christian, just have a morbid fascination with pain. That's not what this is talking about. What this is is Paul is, is showing us that joy, it, it transcends that pain, and it transcends all the difficulties that try to you know, hinder that joy. And so uh, this is not a morbid fascination with pain. Rather, it is a fascination of what God can do even when that pain is present. And, and sometimes you, you hear people say things like, well, nothing, nothing good can come from this. Frankly, that's just, that's not Christian thinking. Go over to James chapter 1 very quickly. James chapter 1. <clears throat> James chapter 1. James starts his epistle speaking to Christians that definitely would know full well what kind of suffering was going on at the time. He says about that suffering, Consider it all joy, my brethren, in verse 2, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does he say? But have joy. Take, consider it all joy, my brethren. And again, it's not that they're just suffering pain. He says, take joy for what this is going to produce in you. Take joy in the fact that God can use this. And really, that's something that should encourage us. I don't think we take enough encouragement of the way that God, as sovereign as he is, he allows people to have free will. And they do what they please. And they will make their own choices. But it does not matter what man chooses. He's still going to have his victory. And... Those that are his people share in that victory. And it's just as short. And so I, we need to take more encouragement in this because, frankly, we are going to suffer until the day that we die. I, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say anything else. What the Bible does say is consider it all joy, my brethren. What the Bible does say is, in the words of Paul, look at what God can produce in just these chains alone, in just this persecution alone. 
And so I, I think we need to ask ourselves, is anything being produced in our respective afflictions? Is anything being produced? Is anything good coming from the persecution that we will suffer if we haven't already? Because we will. It won't be, probably won't be as severe. At least hopefully it won't be as severe. Prayerfully it won't. But we will suffer. If there isn't anything good being produced from those things, I wonder whose fault is that? Is it God's? Remember in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 how it says that God works all things together for good for those who love him. If nothing good is coming from this, it's not God's fault. Who, who else is in this equation? It has to be mine. And so maybe if there's nothing good coming from this kind of suffering, maybe it's, it's a problem of my uh, attitude and my mindset on this. Uh, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think this is interesting. <clears throat> because just as we've been talking about Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, James chapter 1, God can produce good things even from evil, even from outright evil. Uh, when man thinks that there's nothing that can come from this, the word is powerful regardless of the circumstances. And we're going to see this over and over again, that circumstance does not determine a Christian's joy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, Look at what he says as he's, as he's uh, speaking of the sufferings that, that uh, he has gone through, like many of the apostles. It says, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. The reason I like this verse is because, again, I, it just, it, we should be encouraged. Because, yes, I may be imprisoned. Yes, I may be, uh, may be locked down, but there's no way that you can possibly lock down the power and effectiveness of the gospel. It doesn't matter what kind of persecution comes. No one, no enemy of God, Satan himself, cannot imprison the word. And you see that in full view in Philippians chapter 1. The severity of our circumstance can never imprison the effect of the gospel. Only the timidity of our conviction or our devotion can. So maybe the problem is not God's word. Well, certainly the problem is not God's word. Maybe the problem is just me, and I need to work on that kind of attitude. And so Christian joy is not reliant on an absence of uh, persecution, but it also is not reliant on an absence of conflict. Rather, it's emboldened through conflict. Coming back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, look at how Paul talks about the sufferings uh, that, that these people will receive for Christ's sake. In verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1, <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 29 it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Isn't it interesting that Paul, when he talks about suffering, he doesn't say, ah, you're just going to have to scrape by, you're going to have to get, get along. What he says is, it's been granted to you. It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, very important in conversion, very important in the life of a Christian, but alongside that, it's also been granted to you to suffer for his sake. I think when Paul talks about the brand mark, having the brand marks of Jesus at the end of 1 Corinthians, I think that's a beautiful statement. I wonder if, but you, you think about kind of maybe the painful process of, of getting brand marks. But, but I wonder if, if all Christians, if all of us could look at that in, in the same way that Paul would. That I have the brand marks of Jesus. What a beautiful thing that is. And, and what that does, it just invites even more. It invites more affliction because the world doesn't like that. It, in fact, continuing on uh, from where we left off in chapter 1, look in verse 15. <clears throat> After he talks about the gospel not being imprisoned, it, even in his imprisonment, it says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, 
but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And we'll we'll stop there for just a moment. But isn't it interesting that when Paul even talks about uh, people who who seem to be trying to hurt Paul by by it, it, it seems that they're trying to make it seem like he's he's not as eloquent of a preacher to a degree, or he's he's really not all that when it comes to his his evangelism and his ministry. Regardless of what they were trying to do, their reasoning for trying to hurt Paul in this way. How does Paul respond? It's clear they're trying to hurt him. But when people do things to, to hurt Paul, and in comparison to us especially, when people do things to hurt us, we tend to be distractedly angry by that. And, and again, distractedly. We get distracted by our own pride. But Paul says in this case, instead of being distracted, he considerately rejoices. And he's not rejoicing that people are, are doing wrong, because it is wrong to, to preach out of some false pretense. It's wrong to preach the way they were doing it. But look at what God can still produce. The gospel is still being preached. Now, it would be a problem if they were really starting to distort things, and it doesn't seem to have gotten to that point just yet. But what did he say? The gospel is being preached. And what else? What else is more beautiful and more glorious than that? What should bring us more joy than that? He really does practice what he preaches when he says that I proclaim Christ and him crucified. And that is his whole being. Being a Christian inevitably incites conflict. It doesn't matter whether whether you're a preacher or just someone who who has become a Christian. Maybe you're an infant in Christ and you start maybe talking to some people about these things. What inevitably will happen is people know some of the baggage, you know, baggage that comes along with being a Christian. Oh, that means that you're against some of these things that maybe I would promote. Maybe you're against some of these things that maybe one of our coworkers or maybe one of our schoolmates uh, would like to live in such a way and and so what happens is because they know that they start to view you they start to look at you and they start to maybe try to go against some of the things that you might say you don't have to say much it's just the fact that you're living differently that's going to cause a problem being a christian will always incite conflict but god says that if we bear it appropriately it will produce something precious go over to first peter chapter four. First peter chapter four what does he say it's going to produce in first peter chapter four and verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. And if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, of this, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So it's not just Paul saying these things. Peter is also just reemphasizing and repeating the same notion. Suffering will come. And it's going to come because you bear the name of Christ. But when it does, what beauty and what glory because as long as, we're not being, as long as we're not being condemned and put in the same light as those of the sons of disobedience who are just partaking in the deeds of darkness, as long as we're not participating in those things, if we're suffering for the cause of Christ, I can't help but think about all of the promises that were given throughout the ministry of Christ. And, and we've even kind of talked about this this morning in the Bible class. 
But think about when Jesus says, those that confess me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. I, my mind immediately went to that passage when we were reading through Mark and we saw that woman that anoints Jesus with that precious oil. And what does Jesus say? People are going to remember her for what she's done. And we still do, don't we? Isn't it interesting that you see in one moment Jesus' promise being fulfilled and then you think about all the other promises he's made where he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you up even before my Father. But that's not going to happen if we're not willing to confess his name before men simply because of the persecution or the conflict that it might incite. And so we need to be careful that we're not shirking away from that. In fact, this seems to be uh, just kind of, again, a repeat of what something that Peter said in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. In verse 6, beginning, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So what is being produced? What, what precious thing is being produced as, Paul, as, as Peter talks about here? It's an emboldened and strong faith. Do we think like this when we suffer conflict? When, when things go wrong, do we immediately think of the spiritual advantage that we're going to get from this, the victory that God can bring from this, or do we immediately think of a complaint? Again, there's, there's a lot of people that immediately like to start complaining and immediately like start letting everybody know on social media or maybe in a text message or maybe just as soon as you see them, everything that's gone wrong. And it may not be that much. We should not be those kinds of people. Truly joyful people are not waiting to complain. Truly joyful people are not waiting to, to, to find something else that's going to bother them. Truly joyful people are constantly thinking, yes, this hurts. Yes, this is not fair. Yes, this is just hard to go through. But think about what God can produce from this. And so we need to have, try to have Christian joy, not think like the rest of the world that... <clears throat> That we can't have joy just because there is going to be conflict and persecution. But finally, and I think that this is very interesting, Christian joy is not reliant on an absence of sacrifice. The reason I think this is interesting is because I think sacrifice and joy really go together. Now people look at the word sacrifice, I mean, that, what does that mean? You're giving something, you're offering something. And much of the time, it's, it's, I mean, you're losing something to benefit someone else. You think about the sacrifices that the people of Israel gave to God. You think about the sacrifices that we have to give for those that we love. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1. <laughs> Picking back up in verse 18. When you look at Paul's attitude here, it seems that his, his sacrificial servitude and attitude really tended to inspire genuine love uh, uh, and, and, and really genuine joy so picking back up in verse 18 at the end it says yes and i will rejoice for i know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of jesus christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that i will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is christ and to die is gain now especially verse 21 that is very familiar for all of us because it's why wouldn't it be? It's a beautiful thought. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and Paul truly believed in that. In fact, you go over just another chapter in chapter 2 in verse 17. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, he's talking about if, if I die. Even if that's the case, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Not only is Paul saying, I rejoice even though I may die. What he says is, you need to rejoice too. That doesn't mean they're not going to feel sorrow for that loss. That doesn't mean that they're not going to feel some, some level of, of, of righteous indignance for Paul because he had to suffer through those things. But what are they rejoicing for? The love that's shown. The faith, as you even see him talk about in, in chapter 2 and verses 17 through 18. The faith that is being preserved and the faith that is being strengthened. I think it's interesting that sacrifice and love go together in such a way. Not only does, does sacrifice tend to inspire genuine Christ-like joy, but it goes the other way too. Christ-like joy inspires sacrifice. If you turn over to chapter 3 of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so, not... Not only do you have sacrifice inspiring that joy, but you have joy, godly joy, inspiring just even more sacrifice. And, and doing so not in a way where, because a lot of times when, when we sacrifice our time or we sacrifice some of our energy, someone asks us, something broke at the house, or maybe I made a mistake and something needs to be fixed. I'm sorry, but I need your help again. What sometimes can happen when we get that phone call is, oh, they took my offer seriously. <laughs> I told them I'd be there for them whenever they needed me, and now they're calling me. Great. That's not really, that's not sacrifice well given. That's not sacrifice joyfully given, and that's not Christian joy. And frankly, when you think about the sacrifice Jesus gave, how does it talk about Jesus in that, in that mindset, walking towards the cross in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? For the joy set before him, he despised the shame, endured the cross, Jesus did not enjoy the cross. Jesus did never, God never enjoys evil. You know what he did enjoy? What was coming after. What was going to come from that event. We need to get to the point where like God, we start looking at these kinds of events. We start looking at these kinds of circumstances in a very balanced and appropriate scriptural way. We're not rejoicing in the evil and pain and suffering. We're rejoicing in what God can produce in those things. Look at what Paul sacrificed in Philippians 3. He sacrificed comfort, prestige. You can even think about it in terms of academic prestige. He sacrificed social status because he would have been looked at by most of Israel as a, as a hero for persecuting the church. But what he says is he was willing to let it all go. And, and does it sound like he's annoyed by this? I, I really wish that I could keep hold of that. No. In fact, rather than being annoyed by this, it sounds like he's saying, I, I, it's, it's gain that it's all gone now. What else could I do? What more could I do for God? What more could I do for Christ who has given himself for me? 
Now, I, I, I go through all this just to ask, am I like Paul in this? Am I willing to lose for Christ's sake? Or am I more willing to allow Christ to lose for my sake? What does that look like? Well, kind of like instead of doing what Paul did, maybe instead of repenting of everything that God says we need to do away with, we want to bring a few things into his kingdom. We want to bring a few things into this born-again life. But that's just not how it works. Maybe, it, maybe it's not necessarily something like that. Maybe it's just where instead of, of uh, reading the scriptures and, and hearing how the gospel is supposed to affect our lives, especially when it comes to suffering, we like to pick and choose where we're going to suffer for God. Instead of looking at it as we're being granted the opportunity to suffer for his sake. And that's really one of the main things I think people do, Christians do to this day. It's not so much that we're not willing to suffer. We, we want to just pick what we're going to suffer. I wonder if, if Job would look at that and think, what foolishness. Christian joy is not reliant on the absence of suffering altogether. Rather, true joy is reliant only, only on God and a relationship with him. This kind of joy that transcends all suffering only comes from a sincere faith. Without him, there is no steadfastness. Without him, there is no effectiveness. Without him, there is no enduring joy. Why? Well, for starters, because he is the only one who can provide an unshakable hope. He's the only one that can provide a promise that can be have full assurance, that can have a true 100% guarantee. Over in uh, Philippians chapter 3 again, it's interesting because sometimes you read on, on boxes a product that you buy it says with, you know, it, it, there's a guarantee that you have. And it's funny because whenever this product breaks, I don't know if that goes against the guarantee, but, you know, whenever that product breaks, you can kind of call a number and then you ask if you can get something replaced. And then when you go through that whole process, it's like there's a whole, like, subsection of bylaws where it says, well, you, <laughs> there was something like this where somebody had bought a mattress and, and they, there, it was just had a, several issues when they had bought it it was brought to their house and they called this number and they said well there's a guarantee that i'm trying to call on and they said well did you put it on on a metal frame metal bed frame and he said well yeah because really there's not much there's not really much else that we could do and they said oh well we can't really do anything about that you're not supposed to it actually says in the rules that you're not supposed to put this on a metal bed frame and you'd be surprised how many more things that they could put in that. Not only is it not supposed to be on a metal bed frame, it's also not supposed to be pushed up right against to the wall in your room. And it, it was, it was, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it was a really funny story. But all that just to say, that's not really a guarantee. God gives us a guarantee where he says, if you just do what I say, it's, it's a promise that cannot be taken away. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, in verse 12 it says, <coughs> Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which for, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And skip down to verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has in, even to subject all things to himself. <coughs> Excuse me. And so what we see here is that goal that Paul talks about, that promise that he is really referring to, is that promise that we have of heaven. 
our joy can only be as unshakable as our hope. And if our hope is flimsy or unsure, our joy will be the same. Is my hope based on heaven or is it based on earth? Is my hope based on heavenly things, heavenly matters, or is it based on earthly matters? And this is really where I think it's, it's helpful to understand there's a difference between happiness and joy. Joy does have strength and resolve. Happiness is very flimsy. In fact, the word happiness comes from the word happenstance, which is entirely based on chance. And that is what happens. People say, I'm going to be happy once I get this promotion. And then they get that promotion. What happens? They're not happy. <laughs> Maybe they were for a minute, but then it kind of fades. And why is that? Because happiness is temporary. Happiness is just momentary. Joy is an entirely different thing. Happiness is, I'm going to be happy if and when this happens. Joy is, I'm going to be okay as long as I have God. Sometimes we think, there, something's wrong because I, I don't have this kind of joy that I read about in the New Testament. And it could just entirely be that my hope is based on a promotion. My hope is based on a college degree. My hope is based on academic prestige. My hope is based on material things that I can accrue for myself. And maybe we just need to spend more time, all of our time, hoping and working for that heavenly promise for treasures that will never fade and never rot away. And so maybe that's our problem. But not only that, why is it that, we, that, that without God we cannot have true joy? Because he's the only thing that is certain while everything else is uncertain. Circumstance. The situation that, that, that we find ourselves in. Over in chapter 4, and this is another one of the more famous passages from uh, Philippians. <coughs> Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Why? Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. People like to quote that verse, just verse 13 alone. They don't like to quote the previous verses that come right before it. They don't like to quote that Paul is saying, hey, I'm going to be good from the lowly and humble means in, in maybe in, in uh, poverty, and I'm also going to be content even in riches. Isn't it interesting? People don't think you have to learn how to get along. You have to learn to be content with riches. Yeah, you do. And maybe one of our problems is we think that we're not rich in our society. When we're richer than 90, I think it's 97% of the world. And so, yes, you do have to learn to be content. In the, low, in the lowly means and in the high, more abundant means. If we haven't learned that secret yet, that's a problem. If we haven't tried to learn that secret like Paul, that's a problem. It's going to cause issues because what we're doing is not searching for joy. We're searching for that momentary happiness. And the reason that we can learn to be content in everything and anything that comes our way is because those circumstances change. God never does. That, remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing about him will ever change. Paul wasn't content because he could predict everything that was going to happen to him. He was content because God, the unchangeable, was with him. Now, how about me? 
You remember in uh, verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you suffer with anxiety or doubt? Maybe the reason you suffer so much from that is not because... You know, you, you just don't know all you need to know about what the gospel has to offer here. Maybe it's because we haven't matured in that Christian joy. Maybe it's because we haven't learned that contentment that Paul had. I think that that's a, a very reasonable question that we need to ask ourselves. Contentment and joy is a sign of knowing not what's going to happen, but knowing God and being in a relationship with him. And finally... Why can we not have this kind of joy without God? Because he's the only one who can offer grace. And what I mean by that is grace that is transformative, divine grace, grace that actually has the power to change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-9, through 9, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that had been sent to him, and he prays to God on three separate occasions, and every single time, God says no. What's interesting is the answer that God gives to him. No. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient, even though you're going to continue to suffer these things. I wonder how many of us, I wonder how many people look at God's grace and think, God's grace means I'm not going to have to go through these things. And, and maybe, they, maybe they understand that, but they don't show it when they do start to suffer. God's grace plays a bigger role in our lives than just offering a chance of salvation. There's a continual need for it. Of course, that's the primary role of grace. But grace does so much more even after being converted. It inspires joy. It inspires transformation. It inspires resolve and long-suffering and patience when we do start to suffer. It's, it's much like faith. Our joy isn't based on nothing. The world likes to look at us and say, Oh, that's, you, you have nothing to base your faith on. It's just blind faith you're walking by. It's not blind. I may not be able to see everything's about to happen, but that doesn't mean it's blind faith. Our joy is based on the fact that I have been redeemed. My sins have truly been absolved. That I have been purified. That I am capable of being different than I used to be. I'm capable of killing the temptations that have been warring against my soul. Without God's grace, there is no chance for that. Without His grace, there is no way that any of us could possibly attain salvation but change any of the faults that we have. But God says, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so do we have Christian joy? Do we have joy that is long-suffering? Do we have joy that is going to produce something in God's victory? I will just say, when you look at the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, it's interesting because when, when the master, resembling God, speaks to the good and faithful servants, what was their reward? Enter into the joy of your master. We want to talk about the culmination of true joy. That is when our joy will be fully realized. When we are able to enter into that joy of our master. That we have fully pleased him and done as he has asked. And we are able to dwell with him forever in a pure and undefiled relationship. If you're a Christian, <coughs> have you been disappointing that master? Have you maybe, like in the parable been like the one talent man and, and tried to hide the talent, tried to not do everything that you were supposed to do, let me tell you, there's still time. He's not come back at the, for the final judgment yet. And so if maybe you have disappointed the master, you have an advocate in heaven, make things right. But if you're not a Christian, I would just ask, who is your master? 
You can't say Jesus. You can't say God. You can say you love his instruction. You can say you love his word all you like. But if you haven't been converted, you haven't borne the name of Christ yet, you cannot say he's your master. How do you make him your master? Well, you have to be willing to hear everything that he says you must do. You have to be willing to repent of everything he says to do away with. Make a confession based on your belief. Be faithful in everything that he says and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life. And you can call him your master truly. And one day enter into that joy of our master when the day comes. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.